I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. And that is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Hi, I'm Kate Catherall, co-founder and partner with The Arena, and this is The Arena Talks podcast. Today, I'm joined by one of my personal heroes and mentors, 270 Strategy CEO, Meg Ann Sarah. Meg has had an incredible 16-year career in politics and social justice, and most recently served as Hillary Clinton's Battleground States Director. In this episode, we discuss what she learned about teamwork as a forest firefighter, how Paul Wellstone deepened her commitment to grassroots organizing, and what we should take away from 2016 as we look ahead to the midterms. I also got a chance to pick Meg's brain on one of her great superpowers, management and leadership. Whether you are an activist, an organizer, a campaign manager, or a political junkie, I think Meg's story will inspire you. Okay. So Meg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. As someone who had the privilege of working with you and learning from you for years, I'm just really honored that you would take the time for this conversation. And I'm also just really excited to share your story and your wisdom with the arena community. Um, So we're going to spend some time talking about management and leadership in a little bit, but I wanted to start by helping our listeners get to know you on a more personal human level. And I usually start these interviews by asking for a birth to now story, but I want to break that down a little bit more with you. Um, So let's just start with how you came to this kind of work uh, and the work that you do now. How did you first get into organizing and campaigns? Yeah, it's a great question. So I actually grew up in a family of organizers and people who, uh, my dad was a, uh, ran a statewide organizing organization, sort of got his start in doing anti-war stuff when he was a teenager um, and then went on to do community organizing and other parents as well were kind of teachers and organizers. So I grew up with really powerful examples of living a life really driven by social justice values and also using organizing as a way to really affect change. I honestly didn't really know what that meant for me. Um, and so I kind of steer cleared of it. And in and after college, was a wildland firefighter um, out in Oregon and then nationally, which actually has a lot more relevance for politics than you might imagine. Um, but kind of steer cleared of um, activism, politics, and organizing. Was home for Thanksgiving break one year. Had a family friend encourage me to get on a kind of long shot gubernatorial campaign. Um, and I did it thinking, I still had organ plates in my car. I thought I was going to go back out West. This was just going to be a temporary thing. Nine months later, I still had organ plates in my car, but, um, you know, had lost the primary, missed the fire season, um, and was hooked. And, um, in doing politics and frankly, losing some races, uh, really steered me to organizing, uh, because I knew that the issues that I cared about in the world were bigger uh, and couldn't be solved by a campaign, which in most cases, kind of win or lose, goes away at election day. So I love being a part of the political process. I love the inherent optimism of politics. But I think at my core, it's really the organizing that speaks most to me in terms of uh, working with others in community and partnership to create change together. Amazing. And I actually, I want to back up just a little bit because I love the part of your story about being a firefighter and a hotshot. We kind of breezed past that. Um, But it's just, it's so badass. It's also just like, I imagine it as this experience of working as a team in what is actually a very high stakes and potentially dangerous scenario. 
And it's funny because we always talk about campaigns feeling high stakes and fast paced, but this kind of puts that in perspective a bit. And so I actually would love for you to talk a little bit about just what that was like and how that shaped the way that you think about teams and teamwork. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. So I got into firefighting. It was completely random. I grew up in the Northeast. I had no idea what, I I mean, I'd, I'd never seen a forest fire. I don't know really how it happened, but when I was in college, I got in my head that I want to do this. And I found a way actually through an organization called the Student Conservation uh, Corps to basically work for nothing and um, get all my training paid. So I uh, paid for. So I worked on an engine during the week and then I was a lookout relief. I went up to a kind of a top tower and for 48 hours kind of looked and scanned the horizon for fires um, out in Oregon, Southern Oregon. Through that experience, built some relationships that got me on a what's called a hotshot crew, which is a type one resource. So you're kind of an elite set of 20 firefighters. Um, and I was based uh, with the zigzag hotshots, which is based right on Mount Hood, just outside of Portland. Um, and you go on the biggest fires. So you go all over the country. And, you know, it's interesting. It's exciting. Um, you go to incredibly beautiful places. You work really hard. But it actually has tons of relevance for politics. It, it is very urgent. You have to make split-second decisions that have real ramifications, and you have to work effectively as a team. There's just no way for you to do everything by yourself. Um, So on a hotshot crew, there's 20 people, and you literally do everything in a line. Um, And when you're creating fire line, you're removing fuel to slow a fire down. Um, And every single person on that line has, every one of the 20 people has a distinct job that on its own wouldn't do anything, right? chopping down big tree limbs or clearing brush, uh, but together ultimately create something that's larger and creates a fire line. And so it was incredibly powerful messages around teamwork um, and teamwork in stressful situations, um, which is when communication breaks down, um, when you know, you're not clear in your role. And so as I've gone on, you know, it's been a long time since I fought fire, but I actually draw on that experience constantly because I think it inform me a lot around how to do work effectively with others and how to manage effectively. Totally. I mean, I think one of the things that um, everyone who's worked with you or on a team that you've led would say about you is that you are like extremely calm and even keeled and kind of unflappable. And I can only imagine that working as a firefighter doing that kind of work must have prepared you to kind of like keep it in perspective at all times. So thanks for indulging me. I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) So then, okay, so we'll we'll talk more about organizing. So your first campaign was Robert Reich. Is that right? Yeah, he's the former Secretary of Labor under um, uh, President Clinton. And he uh, decided he wanted to run for governor pretty late in the game. Um, But Massachusetts has a late primary. It's got a September primary. Um, And so uh, originally it was just a question mark about whether or not he was even going to be able to get on the ballot. Um, so our first kind of mini campaign within a larger campaign was to get a first time candidate on the ballot, um, and to convince a lot of folks to, uh, vote for him at the convention, uh, so that he could actually even be on the primary ballot in September. And you were a volunteer coordinator on that race. Yeah. So I was, I mean, I was originally unpaid and then we transitioned to paid staff and I was a volunteer coordinator and I, I loved it. I, um, you know, I was lowest on the pecking order um, and we had no resources. So after month two, I I had no money to buy anything. I couldn't buy snacks. I couldn't buy office supplies, nothing. 
Um, and that's when I really started to figure out like, how do you get a lot of people to do things for free? I didn't have authority. <laughs> I didn't have, you know, much influence and I had no money. So, you know, it's really about getting to know people. It's about understanding what makes them tick, what motivates them, putting the right people in the right role and also creating relationships, both with me, but also with each other and the stronger the community, uh, the better. And so that's how I was able to find a bakery that got rid of seconds at night. And so we had these like incredible baked goods, for, you know, twice a week from this, you know, very fancy bakery in Cambridge and how I was able to tap management consultants to help me figure out volunteer flow, you know, it's all born out of necessity. But as a result, um, I, one, I met my husband on that campaign and two, you know, I still have friends to this day who are really active super volunteers. And, you know, I probably learned as much from them as they did from me. And it was an incredible experience. That's awesome. I didn't realize that that's where you met Joel. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, obviously I want to come back to this because I think just digging into your advice for organizers and managers is where I'd like to spend the bulk of our time today. But I also wanted to highlight one other campaign that you worked on, which was Paul Wellstone's. Uh, he's someone who has left a really incredible legacy to the progressive movement and is famous for his commitment to grassroots organizing. You also worked on that campaign um, a pretty pivotal time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Yeah. So the Wellstone campaign was a very formative experience for me. And I, you know, I think we all have these moments where you just know this is going to play a huge role in shaping who, who I am. And that was definitely one of those moments. Um, I had grown up hearing stories about Paul and Jill Wellstone. They were family friends of my parents. Um, and so having opportunity to work on the tail end of that race was just a real privilege. And I went out, I only worked a couple months. It wasn't nearly as long as a lot of other folks. And it totally changed how I thought about campaigns. Um, it was a campaign that was largely run by Minnesotans, um, not kind of, you know, DC insiders. And it was one that really built upon uh, Paul and Sheila's deep kind of commitment and background around community-based organizing. And so, you know, you could see these deep relationships with community leaders and member of a very diverse set of communities, you know, up on the range in the Twin Cities, the immigrant community, it, it just was very rich and diverse. And the campaign then was positioned to draw upon that. And so it really stretched my notion of what you could do and what a campaign could look like, particularly one that prioritized field and organizing. A huge credit of that is really due to Jeff Blodgett, who was a former student of Paul's at Carleton and ran all three of his races and continues to just be a giant in the progressive field and someone who I, you know, uh, discontinued to look up to. And, you know, he had a, a certain ethos in terms of how he was running that campaign. So just days before, I think it was about 10 days before the election or so, you know, Paul and Sheila and their daughter, um, as well as three really beloved campaign aides died in a plane crash. And, you know, because I had not worked the full duration, I was one of the few people who worked on the Mondale campaign because Fritz Mondale stepped in to run in his stead. And it was just this horrific experience of, you know, thinking we had been building towards DOTV rallies and instead we're preparing for memorial services. And you had this incredibly surreal experience. Um, it was just so heartbreaking. Um, and, you know, we also lost the race at that point. Um, and, you know, I think it was really after that race that I recommitted myself to organizing because I loved the feeling of being a part of a community of shared values. I love the inherent optimism that comes with campaigns. 
you know, you're campaigning for something um, and for someone, but I, I just saw that short-term nature and um, to have all of that infrastructure um, seemingly go away after election day just uh, didn't seem like the right solution to so many issues that I cared about. But I, you know, they continue to remain an in, in inspiration and actually particularly in these days and uh, the sort of horrific things that are happening in our world and our country right now, I have missed Paul Wellstone's voice. Uh, he was often referred to as the contents of the of the Senate. And I think there are many wonderful leaders who are stepping and have stepped into that space. But gosh, we could have really used his leadership right now. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a really heartbreaking story. Um, and I appreciate you sharing it. Um, it actually also segues into the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, I think anybody who kind of like looks at your resume, uh, you know, from your early days on Robert Reich's campaign and Paul Wellstone to President Obama's campaign in 2012 to becoming Hillary Clinton's battleground states director in 16 and now stepping into the role of CEO at 270 Strategies, I think most people would look at that and just be struck by the sheer breadth and depth of your experience, and they should be. Um, but the other thing that strikes me is just how resilient and adaptive you would, I, I would assume you'd have to be, right, to keep going through uh, assuming all these different leadership roles on all these different campaigns, which are full of ups and downs. And, uh, you know, coming back to what I said earlier, I think everyone who works with you um, thinks of you as just this really even keeled kind of calm, calmness in the storm. Um, and I think we all really, you know, those of us who've worked with you really look up to you for that. How do you stay so grounded in the face of these big challenges? And how do you stay resilient when you're confronted with, you know, the kinds of, um, as you said, sort of the horrifying things that are happening in the world right now? I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. I think that, so first of all, I think it goes to motivation. And I don't think I ever set out to say, like, I want to run something or I want to be this. I think the questions that guide me professionally are really twofold. One, how can I do good? Like, how can I have an impact that makes the world a better place, whatever form that takes? And the second is, how do I continue to maximize my learning? I, I get very restless if I feel like I'm getting stale or kind of doing the same thing. Um, and so in some instances, that has meant taking on leadership positions. But in some instances, it actually has meant not. But I think if that's your motivation for doing something, it's a, it means that it's a part of something larger and um, not necessarily image or resume or, I don't know, some path. Um, you know, I have ego and my issues just like everyone else. But I think if that's your driving instinct, you got to come back to that and draw from that. I think um, I like solving problems. And, you know, some of my biggest failures have been places where I learned the most. And I think understanding that and understanding that there's a flip side to everything can be helpful to remember, uh, particularly when times are tough. And then I think the other thing is, you know, if you work for people who inspire you and motivate you, losses become responsibility. Uh, so like anyone who worked on that Wellstone campaign in 2002, I think feels just this tremendous responsibility to carry on their legacy in whatever way they can. Um, and I think the same thing is true of 2016. I mean, I was wrecked after 2016. Like, I don't, I don't want to pretend like I was like, oh, but I see the meaning of this. Not at all. Um, I think many of us, myself included, are still struggling to figure out what we do with that process and how we 
make things right for ourselves as well as in the larger world. But there's almost always a silver lining. There's almost always growth. And, you know, just yesterday, I was actually hearing from a personal hero of mine, um, Jess Morales Rocchetto, and she was talking about in this moment how terrifying and truly terrible um, the things are that are going on in the world. But on the other hand, what incredible inspiration we're seeing in terms of people taking on challenges and bringing them into the light um, and people you know, being courageous in ways that we've never seen before. And she said, as an organizer, I find myself asking people things I never thought I could ever ask, right? They're, they're so big in, and it's really redefined her notion of sort of how to work with people because the urgency is so great. And so I, I just think it's such a powerful lesson, you know, to say that even in the face of big mistakes, you can learn and also it can change things for the better. doesn't mean that it's easy, um, but it can. So I don't know. And I just like to ask a lot of questions. And I think if you ask a lot of questions, you don't say freaked out that long. Yeah. Yeah. Jess is amazing. But also, this is only loosely related, but it reminds me of a conversation I had with a hero of mine who is also someone who I think um, it's pretty high up in, in your books as well, which is uh, Luis Avila. I was talking to him a couple weeks ago. The best. The best. And I said, I was having a moment uh, kind of you know, undulating between optimism and despair. I was on the despair end of the spectrum. And I said something to the effect of like, the world is just so, such a horrible place right now. And he like very quickly corrected me and was like, the world is not a horrible place. People with a lot of power are doing some really horrible things. Uh, but the world is actually beautiful. And we have to figure out how to like bring that back. It was a good, good reminder. Um, yeah, I think one, and God, Luis is such a great example of this, but I think you never, ever want to give up your sense of agency. And so in doing that, there's, there's always an opportunity to act. And so I think I, I definitely, especially these days, you know, have struggled on the despair end of the spectrum. I, I think most of us have, but I think, you know, remembering that we all have personal agency and responsibility can be very helpful to cling to in terms of saying, okay, you know, um, this is not the world that I wanted um, and it terrifies me, but what is a step that I can take today? Right. It's a call to action if ever there was one. Um, so one of the main reasons I asked you to come on the podcast today is that I wanted to talk to you about management and leadership. Um, I think this is one of your superpowers and I think anyone who has worked with you would also identify it as such. Um, and we're going to go a little bit deeper here, and I promise to ask you more specific questions. But I wanted to start just kind of broadly with your philosophy on what makes effective leadership and management. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. It means a lot, particularly coming from you. Um, I would say that I think first and foremost, I have a pretty expansive um, definition of leadership. And I think this is something we need, we all need to challenge ourselves on. I find that there tends to be, you know, this default um, largely male, largely white, sort of highly charismatic, incredible order, you know, um, sort of style of, of leadership and management and sort of that scene as like the one way. And the, the reality is there are multiple different ways to lead. And I think embracing that is really important. And for me, a key hallmark is really facilitative leadership. And so how do you, at the end of the day, not just be, you know, a high performing individual, but ultimately be in a position to lead others to be high performing as individuals and together collectively as a team. Like I actually really do believe that teams are better, um, particularly diverse ones. It's hard. 
um, to put them together and to lead and manage them. And you still need clear decision-making and leadership and um, clear roles and expectations. All of that's true. But I actually think that at the end of the day, a high-performing team, not just in terms of volume, but actually quality of work is better. And so if you think about that being your challenge and your goal, it changes, I think, what you emphasize. I think the other thing that's really important to me is just the process really does matter as much as the outcome. And I think particularly in campaigns, we are so outcome focused and for good reason. The, the time is short. Resources are even you know, more stretched and precious. Um, but we use that as an excuse, I think, to not have real conversations or not really get to know people. And we often pay for it at the end. Um, and so one of the things I really want to challenge is a notion that we that you can't effectively manage in a campaign setting. I, I just, I don't believe that. I've experienced something else. I've tried to be a part of creating something else for others. And I think at the end, it, it ultimately, you know, means for a better, more effective campaign, uh, but you have to want to do it. And, and so I think if you think about the way in which you work with people says a huge amount about your values. And it also is really connected to what do you leave behind once the campaign is over or the project ends? And we all know that that's where the real work happens. So I try to have an expansive view of leadership and try to really think about the how, not just the what. Amazing. And, and you and I had a conversation about this earlier in the week. And I think the way you put it is that people on campaigns are always thinking like, how can I afford to invest in management and organizational health? And your response to that is like, how can you afford not to? And I think that's a really, really wonderful crystallization of um, sort of the theme here. So one question I've wanted to ask you for a while, um, because I've, I've known you for, I guess, six years, but um, didn't know you when you first started out on campaigns and you've been managing for quite some time. What were you like when you first started as a manager? What, did you, what were the big lessons that you learned in the beginning? Ugh, as a mess. I mean, I, I was so worried about getting it right. Um, I was very focused on myself rather than on the other people involved. I basically hired people just like me. And it, you know, that's not what you need in a high-performing team. Like it's not a set of clones. Uh, you need a shared set of values. You need uh, to be aligned on your goals and your vision. But you actually do want people with different skill sets and different experiences. Diversity is better. Uh, and I was super tight. And I think that we all have tendencies, I think, on the sort of tight and loose spectrum. But because I was so worried and so scared of failing, it, everything at the end of the day kind of was about me and instead of the work and really instead of about the other person. And I was just, you know, very rigid. And I think that especially with organizing or political work, like there's a lot of um, nuance and there's, it's, there's never one way to do things and there's lessons learned and, you know, that you have to be clear with expectations, but I did not hire effectively and I definitely did not manage effectively. And it's probably through those really hard lessons learned because I was so passionate about doing work and, and having greater impact. So I was very, very hungry to affect scale and I knew I couldn't do it by myself, but I just didn't quite understand. And I didn't have a lot of people, I think, take the time. So it was more learning just through trial and error which I think is a powerful way to learn. It's just pretty inefficient. Um, and so one of the things that I encourage for first-time managers is to find mentors, maybe their, their direct manager, it may be someone else, just to have a dedicated time to talk about management 
and then also to find peers. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be someone who's the stage management, you know, guru. It's more about creating time and space to reflect because often we're just so busy during our days, we're not taking a step back to look at an issue from multiple different angles. But I mean, make no mistake, I have ineffectively managed individuals and teams a huge amount, which is, I think, uh, what I draw from and has made me better is just learning from those experiences. And I do think it just takes practice um, and reflection and intention. I'd be reluctant to believe you, except that I identify wholeheartedly <laughs> with that experience, especially when you talk about sort of the transition from like tight to loose management. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that probably a lot of people can relate to, especially if they're people who started managing really young um, with, you know, kind of perfectionist drive. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that as well. Um, what are a couple of things that you wish you knew when you started thinking about advice that you might give to, to somebody who's maybe managing for the first time? Yeah. So I think the three, maybe three or four things. So the tight and loose thing is really big. Um, so it's like being really clear on what does need to be a certain way. Um, and then being a lot more flexible and open about different ways to get there. So like the expectations have to be super clear, but really understanding that it can look different and sort of the difference between what does need to be core is like a core requirement. And then what's stylistic. Often we make things that are stylistic uh, into requirements and they're really not. And so that notion of tight and loose uh, has been very, very helpful to me. I think the second thing is um, I think a lot about paths and steps. So often when we are delegating we just give people a step, a task, without providing the context, the rationale, the bigger picture, the path. And if you just think about it, it's really hard to be successful with an individual task if you don't understand how it fits into a larger context. And you're probably um, losing out on the opportunity to get more. Um, and so, you know, I try to provide paths while still having the expectation of the, of the step. And what you find in return is that people do a better job more efficiently and chances are they're going to contribute in other ways. Again, because there's multiple ways to get to someplace. I think the third thing is you can't really teach motivation. You can basically draw upon it. And in order to understand motivation, you need to get to know people. And, you know, I, I like to think that um, we all sort of speak the same language, but we speak in different dialects. And I think to really effectively manage someone you need to understand what makes them tick and what really brings them to the work. What are they most passionate about? How do they want to grow? That takes time and investment. Um, but that's what you need to tap into, especially when you're trying to change behavior or learn something new, which is really hard. And, and so you got to make time to build that relationship. A relationship is a two-way street. I'm not saying that you need to you know, socialize with people or hang out like a, you know, it should be a professional relationship, but it is a relationship. And the more you get to know someone, the better you'll be able to speak their dialect and sort of tap into that motivation. And then finally, and anyone who knows this, including you, Kate, is I spent a huge amount of time on time management. And I definitely did not start out that way. I think, but I think where you spend your time says a huge amount about your priorities and your values. And often they're just not aligned with like the values and priorities you have in your head and then where your time is actually going. And so one, I spent a huge amount of time looking at where I'm spending my time. I don't always get it right, 
but I really try to be intentional about where that time goes and how does it align. And then two, when I'm managing other people and they are struggling with something, I almost always look at where their time is going. And it, I more times than not find sort of what's behind the challenge um, because it has to do with a misuse of time. So time management, I think, is just uh, something we don't give a lot of attention to, but actually is like very, very important, especially when folks are working on campaigns or doing organizing and have just limited time. To, you, know, you never have enough time and you have to make hard choices. And so sp- really spending time and thinking about where you, sp- where you spend your time on the calendar, I think, pays huge dividends. I love that. Um, our team has started talking about your time budget kind of harkening back to, I think it's the Biden quote. I'm not sure if he's the one who originally said it, but like, you can tell me what your values are and that's fine, but show me your budget and I'll tell you what your values are. Like, I think it's, it's really true. Um, but it's easier said than done for sure. Um, I also just so appreciate the way that you're able to kind of get really concrete, uh, with these sort of, I don't want to say tips, but sort of these principles for how you manage, because so often we talk about like aligning on vision or creating psychological safety. And it's kind of like HBR talk, but it doesn't really go <laughs> to like that next level of like, I mean, that too. Mean practice. Yeah, that too, that too. But I mean, you know, when you say stuff like talking about uh, laying out the paths, but also being cognizant of the steps and the difference between those two things, I think that's, you know, to me, that's like about how you align on vision, but it's how you strike the balance because align on vision loses its meaning, right? If you say it enough times. Um, and that actually gives you a way to act on that. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, a lot of times when people talk about management, they talk at a very conceptual level and yep. I do believe in like mindset, right. And sort of intentionality, but I don't, I, maybe I'm just more of a little personal, but when I work with people, they need frameworks, um, that they can then make their own. And, and so, you know, it, it is directly like paths and steps is directly connected to, you know, uh, vision, mission goals, right? Like right. they're one and the same. It just is a way of operationalizing it that I think makes it a little bit more, I don't know, actionable. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, well, we're almost at time. I, I wanted to um, make sure we had an opportunity to talk about one last subject that is very relevant to your work now. Um, and I think also you just have a unique perspective to offer here. Um, we touched a little bit earlier on um, 2016. You played a really important role on Hillary's campaign as Battleground States Director. Um, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but there's also just a lot of noise about it in the environment. As we look ahead to the upcoming elections in November 2018, what are the lessons that we should take away from 2016? What are the lessons that we should take away from 2017, everything that's happened since? Um, and what's your sense of how we win? I know those are big questions, but whatever you can offer there. Yeah. Well, I think that there's, I mean, gosh, we could talk about this for a really long time. Um, but I think that there are a lot of lessons uh, to be learned. Uh, one is that there's just a lot of work to be done. And even with a campaign, um, a presidential campaign, you know, I, I just found in 2016 that we just, we didn't have enough time to establish a foundation and a course that a relationship to drop on. And it actually sort of comes back to that, the conversation about Wellstone. I think we have increasingly gotten more transactional and um, that means we don't do enough listening. And I think 
you know, there are some very seismic things happening in the world, in our country, and we didn't fully understand them because we were so busy talking. So I think we need to do more listening. I think I'm tremendously encouraged by the diversity of candidates who are running. Um, these are people who um, look like the America that we are and also are people who are, they're not saying I'm doing this. You know, the end goal wasn't to be an elected leader. Becoming an elected leader is an opportunity to serve. Um, and I think that that fundamental shift is incredibly encouraging. Um, but we have to build relationships uh, and do organizing within the community that we then draw upon. I think if we're if we're only talking to people, you know, during GOTV, it just doesn't it doesn't work. And look, there were a lot of things that the Clinton campaign did that were highly successful, and those are stories that will not, unfortunately, I think, be told in the way that they should. So it's less about I think that singular campaign and more about where we are in this moment. But I, you know. As terrified as I am about things that are happening in the larger world, I'm also incredibly encouraged by so many of the activists that are coming forward, so many of you know, the just incredible dynamic, um, and I think sort of truly servant leaders that are stepping forward and I think are ultimately going to remake who our elected officials are. Um, I think the challenge to me is how do we sustain it? And so I'm thinking a lot about you know, what does it look like? to go from protest, you know, to movement? And how do you take folks who are very passionate about a singular issue and combine it again in a way that leads to movement? How do you take individual activation and really support that in becoming collective action? Because it's really, that's when the real power happens. And I think a lot of people are going to win this November, but some people aren't. And I don't, one of the things I'm worried about is that we take the wrong lessons and use single outcomes to determine, you know, sort of be overly determinate about single outcomes. The reality is, is that you have to do a lot of work and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but we have to be in it for the long haul. And so a lot of where my mind and energy is like, how do we support that with underlying infrastructure so that this isn't just a single year or a single cycle? but ultimately who we are, you know, as Democrats, as progressives, and as a country. Last question I have for you is about the work that you're doing now. You mentioned collective action. A big part of what you do at 270 is working with campaigns and causes that are doing organizing and movement building work. What are you working on right now that you're really excited about? Gosh, there's so much. Well, you know, um, informally, we just as a firm tried to do everything we possibly can and, and are continuing to do to support, you know, the National Domestic Workers Alliance and Move On and so many others who are um, taking a real kind of um, leadership role around the family separation crisis at the border. Um, and I think making sure that we keep the focus on that issue. In addition, we've been working with NARAL around reproductive rights and particularly in uh, light of resignation and that just very dramatic shifts um, at the Supreme Court level, which will have impact for generations. You know, how do we fight back? And also how do we talk about reproductive rights, women's rights and health in a different way? Um, and then also work with the ACLU, which I think is doing really groundbreaking work to talk about and sort of inject civil liberties um, into an electoral context um, in a nonpartisan way, uh, which I think is, has huge ramifications for impact. So I, 
I feel so fortunate to work with so many leaders in the progressive space and I'm continually inspired by what they do. That's incredible. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, I am so appreciative of you taking the time for this conversation. Uh, I think that our listeners are really going to get so much out of it. And we could have spent a day, I think, talking about any one of these topics. So we'll have to have you back at some point. Thank you. I'd um, love to. Yeah. Thank great. you so much, Meg. I really, really appreciate it. I, I just want to say one quick thing, which is um, I think the work that's happening at the arena and the community that you all have built is one of the most encouraging and inspiring things that's happening right now. I think that and young people are sort of what continue to give me hope, but just sort of these improbable communities, of people who didn't necessarily know each other and are doing things for the first time. And the arena is just sort of at the forefront of that. So I, you know, always love an opportunity to talk with you, Kate, but um, I think that the work of the arena is just some of the most important work that's happening. So thank you. Thank you. That really means a lot. And you've been a big part of that. So thank you for that as well. 